As we have been studying, we've been looking at the book of Acts all week long, generally chronological, but you know, not dogmatically so. We've been trying to look at themes, topics, ideas that would be pertinent and relevant to our day that are historically true and are doctrinally sound, but have a practical application for our lives here at the end of time. We're looking at what we call first-generation lessons for last-generation believers. And I don't know about you, but I fully intend to do all that I can to be part of the very last generation here on earth. I believe that our time here is winding down, that the Lord has great things in store for his people. There are challenges ahead for sure, but all the guidance and instruction that we need is right here in the word of God. And if we remain faithful and useful to him, we will see Jesus come soon and very soon. Now, at this point, just to very briefly recall, in Acts chapter 15 was a turning point in the early church. There was this great discussion, what the author called no small dissension and dispute about the issue of circumcision, and, the, and that was just the tipping point of the larger question of must people become ceremonially Jewish before they can be practicing Christian. And all throughout the the lead up to that, while the Apostle Paul was ministering among the Gentiles, there was always a cadre of pious, zealous, what the Bible would call Judaizers, who believed in Jesus Christ, but also were so culturally steeped in the Jewish faith and the ceremonial traditions and rites and ceremonies of their faith tradition, that they actually heckled Paul They would actually hunt Paul, try to murder him on occasion because of his methodology and his direct approach with the Gentiles. That all came to a head in Acts chapter 15, and as we studied earlier, there was a beautiful experience where there was brought to an understanding these various opinions, which from human standpoint seemed insurmountable through the Holy Spirit's power, through the clarity of the Word, and through the instruction of the Spirit of prophecy, the believers were brought into unity. And Paul was sent along with others with a message in hand that there would be one faith and it would not be different separate territories having some mandatory circumcision, some not, some... No, no, no. All would come to faith in Jesus without works and it was a beautiful thing. And you would assume from that point on That all would be well. Finally, we passed that issue. We can look at it through the rearview mirror and go forward to better things. But as we're going to see today, there were still challenges in the early church, even amongst the leading elders and even apostles. And we're going to see, closing out the life of Paul today, and maybe some lessons that we need to learn for our lives even now. But before we begin any study of God's Word, of course, let us begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for another day of life and particularly for a day of Sabbath rest and fellowship and worship and service for you. Lord, we come this morning asking to understand your Word But more than a mere convincing of the truth, we want the conviction of the truth on our hearts. And Lord, even beyond that, we want conversion to the truth by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, work out in our lives the counsel of inspiration. Forgive us when we have fallen short, myself and anyone else here included. But now, Lord, we ask that you would form us into your image. And make us more like Jesus, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning's studies will be our most abstruse study and intricate study, yet I believe it's intensely practical to where we are in life right now. See, as I said, leading up to Acts chapter 15, you can see all the way through the chapters leading up there that there was always this, this going after Paul, this going after him and Acts 15 comes along and praise the Lord, everyone's on the same page. And you would, we, we turn to Acts chapter 16 as we saw and the 
he takes Timothy and has him circumcised, not because of, for his own salvation, but for the salvation of others. There was a sacrificial spirit going the extra mile, doing more than what was required. There was a, a zeal and a fervor for spreading the gospel, and it was great. But we're going to look at some passages today that show that even after that great Jerusalem council, the issue for many people was not settled. And it kept rearing its ugly head, and it kept hunting Paul even going forward. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts this morning, and let's start with chapter 17. Again, 15 was the council's decision, 16 he circumcises Timothy and goes forward, and in 17 we'll start with verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went to them, went into them for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. Verse 5, But the Jews who were not persuaded Becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. Notice who was stirring this uproar. Those Jews who were not persuaded. They weren't convinced. We go to Acts chapter 18. This, of course, is just a quick sample. We don't have time to do the exhaustive study through every chapter and verse, but I want to give you a taste test of what Paul was facing in his ministry. Let's look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 18. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to him, said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Skipping down to verse 12. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now I'll pause right there. You can do a fascinating study of that phrase, one accord. And I guarantee you, most every person in this room or listening to this message right now, if you say, where do we talk about the, word, the term one accord? Oh, it's in the book of Acts, when the believers were brought into unity of the faith. But you remember in Acts chapter 7 when the leaders rejected the word of God, they were brought into one accord in Stone Stephen. Here they come with one accord against Paul. Satan is trying to bring the enemies of Christ into unity as well. There will be a great division in the last days, those who are faithful and those who are not, and each will be of one accord with the other, with themselves, I should say. We continue in this story. Verse 14, and when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. Here, the civil ruler recognized that what you guys are fighting about isn't an actual criminal offense, it's just ceremonial stuff that has to do with your religion. You go sort it out. It has nothing to do with me. You'll find, interestingly enough, that Paul, some of his best defenders were non-believers, were Romans, were the guards, were the leaders and civil magistrates. They recognized that this is an inside baseball thing. This is a Jewish spat. This has nothing to do with us. But there was the Jews who were not appreciating Paul's message. They kept turning on him. Let's go to Acts chapter 20. Acts 
after Paul had, this is an interesting one to me because you look at um, the experience in chapter 19 when Paul was at Ephesus and the pagan non-believers did not like him at all. There was a riot in Ephesus. It was a big, dangerous place, so I had to leave there. And then we go immediately to chapter 20 in verse 1, and we read, After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and parted to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed there three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to say, and the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Again, he's being hunted and, 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 and persecuted by the Gentiles and by the Jews. In a certain sense, he's a man without a country. His only hope, his only safety were the brethren who were with him in spirit. Well, in the midst of this, Acts chapter 17, 18, 19, 20, this area, this time of his life, after the first Jerusalem council, when he's gone out to do the very work they sent him to do, with the decree in hand, preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, we get an insight during this time of Paul's plans for the future. Let's go right back to Acts chapter 19. While he was at Ephesus, he outlines... his schedule, his plans, his thinking for the future. Let's look at verse 21. Acts chapter 19, verse 21. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to where? Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see where? Rome. So notice he's in Ephesus, going through Macedonia and Achaia with the goal of getting to Jerusalem so that he could go to Rome. By the way, Paul is very strategic in his planning as well. He doesn't just kind of aimlessly roam around to whatever city. No, no, he has a, he has a plan. He has a goal, objective. He said, I'm going to finish my work here in Ephesus, then Macedonia and Achaia, en route back to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem will be my springboard to get to Rome. And of course, we know he made it to Rome. But I don't want to give too much away, but not under the circumstances he originally planned. But he's setting up these things. This will lead to this, will lead to this, which will get me to Rome. But we find out, as we study even deeper, that Rome was not his final objective either. Let's go to the book of Romans, which of course was written to those in Rome. And it was written ahead of his visit. The book of Romans was not written after he visited. It was in preparation for his visit there. He's setting the stage. He's laying out the dominoes, if we will. Setting up the sequence. And we're going to Romans 15. Let's start with verse 22 of Romans chapter 15 to get inside the strategy of Paul, the aims and objectives, his plans for the future. Romans 15, starting with verse 22. For this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you. So notice he's writing to people he hasn't been to yet. But now no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire the, these many years to come to you. So he's been planning this trip to Rome for quite a while, yes? Many years to come to you. Now look at verse 24. Whenever I journey to where? Spain. By the way, the title of our message today is First and Second Barcelonians. Which, of course, there's no book in the Bible named First or Second Barcelonians. Much in the same way there's no book in the Bible named Hezekiah. People will turn to it either way if you tell them to. But, but there isn't a book written to the people of Spain. But he planned on going. He was telling the people in, Roman, in, in Rome, I pl I've planned this trip for quite a long time. This is my ultimate objective is to get to, you know, to, to Jerusalem, to fund my trip to Rome, and then from Rome launch into Spain. Again, verse 24, whenever I journey to Spain, continuing, I shall come to you. 
still writing to the Romans, for I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you if first I may enjoy your company for a while. So he's already laying the groundwork. He's like, I want to come and meet you, spend time with you. If you trust in my plans, I would hope that you help fund my work to Spain. He's setting the stage. Verse 24, but now I am going to where? Jerusalem. Remember, that was his plan there in Acts chapter 19. Starting at Ephesus, he says, you know, I'm going to go from Macedonia to Achaia, then to Jerusalem, then to Rome, and off to Spain. And now he's writing to the Romans. But now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of the spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by you by way of you to Spain. Paul had a very clearly outlined plan. It involves continuing his work in Ephesus, Macedonia, Achaia, and heading to Jerusalem, setting up his trip to Rome, which will launch him into mainland Europe and Spain. There's a passage in the Old Testament Scripture, Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, some wisdom, verses 16 and 17, honestly it's a little bit of a difficult to understand passage, but I have to think there's some application to Paul here, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Verses 16 and 17. Do not be overly righteous. Didn't expect that from Scripture. (laughs) Nor be overly wise. And here's the reason why, the rhetorical question. Why should you destroy yourself? Verse 17. Do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? Paul was a planner, he was a strategist, and he was absolutely determined on this plan, and that plan involved a stop in Jerusalem. He's got to go see the brethren again. Remember the last time he was in Jerusalem, he was sent out with the good news of the resolution of Acts chapter 15. He's raised money for their help there. He wants to bring it to them. He wants to help them. He wants to minister. He wants to be reunited with his brethren there. But as we go forward, we're going to see that the Lord tried to talk him out of that stop. But he was determined to go. Let's go back to the book of Acts. As he's on his way now, we're going to go to chapter 21. Let's just read verses 1 through 4. You follow a few steps of his journey. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from there and set sail, from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Batara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had we come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were all out, till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. And we had taken our leave of one another. We boarded the ship, and they returned home. So on his journey. He runs to some people, stays there a week, and according to Scripture, through the Spirit, they tell him, don't go to Jerusalem. And apparently he listens very politely, but just keeps going. Skip down to verse 7. 
outlining this journey to Jerusalem. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Now the scripture does not tell us the substance, the content of those prophecies that they prophesied. But it wouldn't take too much sanctified imagination to see in the context of this story likely what the theme of their prophecies were. Keep reading now. Verse 10, and, that is in addition to those seven who prophesied, and as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. Nor be foolish. For why should you die before your time, the Scripture says. Sounds pretty dire, what's about to happen in Romans. I mean, in Jerusalem. But Paul is set on this. And the scripture just continues very seamlessly. His arrival at Jerusalem and the reception of the brethren. And I'm guessing after all these forebodings and ominous things and direct counsel that Paul might have been expecting, boy, this is going to be bad, but I'm just going to clench my teeth and go through with it. But look at the kind of reception he receives. Verse 15. After those days, we packed up and went to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain uh, nation of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge, verse 17. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us how? Gladly. <laughs> I wonder if Paul was like, man, all of those warnings. And he knocks on the door, he opens it up. I wonder if he's like, ooh. But they say, Paul, welcome back. So good to see you. How was the trip? He was like, oh, whew. good, all is well. They're with me, we're still together, no problems. He was just they, were just, they were just anxious, they were just worried, you know, just fussy. Glad I stuck to my plan. Verse 18, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. This meeting included many of the same men present when the issue of circumcision was decided in Acts chapter 15. Do you remember that Jerusalem was the headquarters for the apostles and leading brethren, right? They were the ones who didn't flee in the persecution. When there was the issue out in the field about circumcision, it's brought back to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. And now he's returning to Jerusalem after that tour of duty with the where he had given the good news that they had decided on in Acts 15 altogether. And now he returns, and it says there, James and all the elders were present. So it goes on to explain. When he had greeted them, verse 19, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Because you recall, that's what he was sent out by them to do. He was commissioned, take this message to the Gentiles. And he tells them, boy, it's been great. Yeah, I almost got killed a few times, but other than that, it was great. Verse 20, and when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. So far, so good, right? Hmm. Commenting on those present in the book Acts of the Apostles, page 209, we read, it was before the same audience at the Apostolic Council years before 
that he related his experience and his conversion and the great work which God had wrought through him among the Gentiles. The Spirit of the Lord then, referring to Acts 15, witnessed to the word unspoken and under its influence the council yielded their prejudices and expressed themselves in harmony with the position of the apostle and sent an address to the churches to that effect. Then she adds, but the same battle was again to be fought, the same prejudices once more to be met. These are the same folks who sent him out. Now he's telling all the stories of how great it worked. But over the course of time, old attitudes have reemerged. Former prejudices have been reestablished. And things have changed. Mrs. White explains what that change was. In Acts of the Apostles, page 401, we read these words, speaking of this second Jerusalem council. Afterward, that is after Acts chapter 15, when it became apparent that the converts among the Gentiles were increasing rapidly, there were a few of the leading brethren at Jerusalem who began to cherish anew their former prejudices against the methods of Paul and his associates. These prejudices strengthened with the passing of the years until some of the leaders determined that the work of preaching the gospel must henceforth be conducted in accordance with their own ideas. If Paul would conform his methods to certain policies which they advocated, they would acknowledge and sustain his work. Otherwise, they could no longer look upon it with favor or grant it their support. The very ones who sent him out with the good news to the Gentiles had changed their minds. And we're now going to test Paul again. Let's keep reading. So far, it doesn't seem that ominous at all. They've received him gladly, and they glorified the Lord when they heard of his work among the Gentiles. So what are we missing here? Well, let's just keep reading. Again, verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they're all zealous for the law. He's like, we've got a lot of believing Jews here. I know you've been working among the Gentiles, but we've been here in Jerusalem, and there's a lot of believing Jews now. Praise the Lord for that growth, too. And I'm sure Paul was like, amen, that's what we want. He said, they love the Lord, Jesus Christ, but they're also still zealous for the law. And I wonder if at that moment, Paul's like, wait a minute. I thought we resolved this before. You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law, but they have been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. They love the Lord Jesus Christ, they also love the law, and they are hearing some things about you that, mm-mm, You've got some problems here, Paul, amongst the believing Jews. Verse 22, they propose a strategy of their own. What then, they ask, the assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. It's like you're going to get in big trouble. You're going to have to answer for your reckless ways. Therefore, verse 23 Do what we tell you. Here's their plan. We have four men who have taken a vow. You know, part of the rites and ceremonies of Judaism. Verse 24, they say, Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they are, were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. 
Then they make a distinction, of course, verse 25. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. These leading men proposed a solution, quote-unquote, to the resistance that Paul continually encountered from the Jews, and it was simply this. Fund and participate in the purification ceremonies of four local Jewish men which would include seven days of ceremonies performed in the temple during one of Jerusalem's most densely populated seasons of the Hebrew economy. Now, Paul attended the Jewish feasts, though he himself would declare them unnecessary for salvation. You recall, again, that Paul circumcised Timothy while having the document in hand, saying it was unnecessary. And so I imagine that Paul, when he heard this proposal, thought, well, I mean, I get, and he starts to rationalize. Maybe it wouldn't be so bad if I, he starts to justify a compromise that deep down inside he knows he should not make. Basically, these brethren want him to go to the most public place he can to participate and fund with others rites and ceremonies of the Mosaic law, the ceremonial law, to demonstrate that he still believes that they are a requirement for salvation. Now, we looked at the brilliance of Paul and how he would adapt his methods to whatever congregation, whatever uh, audience he was before. He says, I've become all things to all people that I may win some, right? To the Jews, I became a Jew. So what's wrong with this proposal? You can imagine him racking his brain, looking at it from every angle. Mm. Certainly not what I intended to do. I'm not even sure if it's the right thing to do. But I want to win the brethren. And surely if I go this one step, they'll be with me. Anytime he adapted his method of work, it was to reach the target audience by not letting unnecessarily cultural considerations cloud his message. The proposal now offered by the leading apostles and elders, however, was not merely for the furtherance of the gospel but would result in confusing people as to Paul's true gospel position. Their request basically challenged Paul, if you're really a Jew still, then do this uniquely Jewish thing in the most prominent Jewish place. I find striking similarity between this proposal and Satan's approach to Christ in the wilderness when he opened each temptation with, if thou art the Son of God. While there was nothing inherently wrong with observing a ceremonial vow, To do so in an attempt to placate judgmental characters was a disgrace to the cause of Christ and would confuse the message Paul was commissioned to give. Sketches from the life of Paul, page 212. The brethren hoped that by this act, Paul might give a decisive contradiction of the false reports concerning him. But while James assured Paul that the decision of the former council, that is Acts 15, concerning the Gentile converts and the ceremonial law still held good, the advice given was not consistent with that decision, which had also been sanctioned by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God did not prompt this advice. It was the fruit of cowardice. The next page from Sketch of the Life of Paul, page 213 speaking of the mindset of those in their room that day. The disciples themselves yet cherished a regard for the ceremonial law and were too willing to make concessions, hoping by so doing to gain the confidence of their countrymen, remove their prejudice, and win them to faith in Christ as the world's Redeemer. Paul's great object in visiting Jerusalem was to conciliate the Church of Palestine, So long as they continued to cherish prejudice against him, they were constantly working to counteract his influence. He felt that if he could do any, he could by any lawful concession on his part win them to the truth, he would remove a very great obstacle to the success of the gospel in other places. But he was not authorized of God to concede so much as they had asked. This concession was not in harmony with his teachings nor with the firm integrity of his character. As we continue reading Acts chapter 21, it doesn't take long at all. Verse 27. Well, we'll just go to verse 26. He takes the deal. 
Then Paul took them in, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. From that instant, that moment, almost no other time in Paul's life was he a free man. Crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Going down to verse 30, and all the city was disturbed and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. And immediately the doors were shut. Now obviously it has a primary understanding of the doors of the temple where they were, were shut. But it's not too hard to read into it a deeper meaning. That the doors of his plans for ministry were shut from that moment. Now friends, I want to be clear. The Bible is inspired of God and is able to make us wise unto salvation. Everything that we need is in this word. There is nothing lacking in the scripture, amen? And of course, it's simply my sanctified imagination that's saying even if he had made it to Spain that he would have written an epistle of first and second Barcelonians. But we'll never know. Because he never made it. From his time in Jerusalem under his arrest, he got passed from civil legislature to civil magistrate and ruler. And during that time, he remained faithful to the Lord and preached the gospel with all of his heart. He had opportunity to deliver the gospel message to leading men, to Felix, to Festus, to Agrippa. He even made house converts from the household of Caesar. And when he died, he died faithful. His own testimony as he saw his life coming to a close is found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Immediately after he gives the charge to Timothy, you preach the word, you do the work of evangelists, endure afflictions, fulfill your ministry. The very next word he says in verse 6 of 2 Timothy 4, the reason he's putting all of this pressure, this great charge to young Timothy Paul understood where he was headed now. Look at verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. But he could say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So I want to be clear, he did not backslide and leave the faith, but in a moment of compromise, he went a step too far. In Sketches of the Life of Paul, page 214, we read these words. When we consider Paul's great desire to be in harmony with his brethren, his tenderness of spirit towards the weak in faith, his reverence for the apostles who had been with Christ, and for James, the brother of the Lord, and his purpose to become all things to all men as far as he could do this and not sacrifice principle. When we consider all this, it is less surprising that he was constrained to deviate from his firm, decided course of action. But instead of accomplishing the desired object, these efforts for conciliation only precipitated the crisis, hastened the predicted sufferings of Paul, separated him from his brethren in his labors, deprived the church of one of its strongest pillars, and brought sorrow to Christian hearts in every land. Instead of pacifying the Jews who were so upset at him, this compromise action simply placed him directly in harm's way. 
Paul was arrested and, as we mentioned, spent the next years in almost continual captivity, finally culminating with his death in Rome. As I look at the experience of Paul and the good motives he had for a bad decision, surely the Lord could have winked at that, yes? Surely the Lord could have worked with it and rescued him from his captivity. He had done it before with the lives of the apostles, had he not? For instance, go back to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. Look at verse 1. Way back in a much earlier time, when the persecutions against the apostles just begun, we read this. Now about that time, verse 1 of Acts chapter 12, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. It doesn't take a scholar. What is the intent that he's going to do with Peter? He's going to kill him just like he did James. It pleased the Jews, right? Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he, had, when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Now, I think the key is in verse 5. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. When Peter went into prison, the brethren in spirit went with him. They kept constant prayer for him. They lifted him up before the Lord. They interceded on his behalf, and the Lord worked a mighty miracle. I love the story. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly! And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second gate posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together doing what? Praying. Friends, why was Peter delivered from prison? Because of the prayers of the brethren who were with him in spirit. Now I have to surmise, why wasn't Paul delivered from prison? Sketches from the life of Paul, page 231. I think we find a partial answer here. The Savior's words of reproof to the men of Nazareth apply in the case of Paul, not only to the unbelieving Jews, but to his own brethren in the faith. Listen very carefully. Had the leaders in the church fully surrendered their feelings of bitterness towards the apostle and accepted him as one specially called of God to bear the gospel to the Gentiles, the Lord would have spared him to them to still labor for the salvation of souls. He who sees the end from the beginning and who understands the hearts of all saw what would be the result of the envy and jealousy cherished towards Paul. God had not in his providence ordained that Paul's labor should so soon end. But he did not work a miracle to counteract the train of circumstances to which their own course gave rise. It was not the will of God that Paul's labor should end as soon and in the manner that which they did. But he did not work a miracle because the other people were, were set on this course. It's a heavy thought. But in all of this history, with all of this story, it is at this point when Sister White turns to application to our day, saying these words, the same spirit is still leading to the same results. And neglect to appreciate and prove the provisions of divine grace has deprived the church of many a blessing. How often would the Lord have prolonged the life of some faithful minister 
had his labors been appreciated. But if the church permit the enemy of souls to pervert their understanding so that they misrepresent and misinterpret the words and acts of the servant of Christ, if they allow themselves to stand in his way and hinder his usefulness, the Lord removes from them the blessing which he gave. I'm sure there are many, many lessons we can take from this story. But two that spring to mind I want to share with you this morning. First of all, from the perspective of Paul, he had this idea, I want to be brilliant, I want to work in the most shrewd way, and we looked at a whole message about that yesterday, and we commend the mind of Paul for his creativity, for his zeal, for reaching all people. But you can go too far in reaching the people you intend to reach. Paul wanted to win his Jewish brethren, and he went too far and caved on principle. Never conform to the culture you are trying to reach to the point that the message you are called to bear is distorted. Friends, we are called to be Seventh-day Adventists. Called to be God's representatives in these last days. We should live like it. There should be a distinction. We should make accommodation. We should work with people, go as far as we can without breaking principle, but we should never compromise our faith. Paul, in that moment, perhaps only one time in his life, sold out. And it cost him his life and ministry. Let's not make that same mistake in our day. And another lesson we need to learn in our church or at least we need to revisit, is to always hold up in prayer those through whom God is working. Even if you don't understand why they are doing what they're doing, or even disagree with the way in which they're doing it. And I understand there are bad methods out there, but pray for them anyway. Everyone in the church is a fallen human being who needs the grace of God, needs the pardon and power that only Christ can provide, leaders included. Lift up your administrators, your pastors, your local elders, your world field leaders. Satan desires nothing more than to see God's church splinter and divide. Friends, do not let it happen. The council is more relevant today than ever before. Press together, press together. I would urge that we have more praying for our leaders and less talking about our leaders. And especially if we see them trending off the road, lift them up even more earnestly in prayer. Imagine what the Lord could have done through Paul if he had made it to Spain. Sure, he was going to suffer and die, but he could have done a little bit more work. He could have pressed the edge a little farther. What if he had made it to mainland Europe? How would that have changed the course of history? I don't know. We'll never know. And of course, the hand of providence still leads scriptures unfold just as it should. But it was not the will of God that his ministry should end the way it did. He had more work for him to do. And according to the spirit of prophecy, that same conflict is there today. There is more we could be doing if we were each faithful to the message and lifting each other up in prayer. Friends, I believe that Jesus is coming soon. But he's entrusted this message to us to help make soon, soon soon-er. We must press together. We must never compromise the faith. We must pray for each other as never before. And I believe with all of my heart that the Lord will shine forth his glory through our humble, feeble efforts. And the book of Revelation will come to a climactic end and Jesus will come. Imagine what God could have done through Paul in Spain and now imagine what God wants to do through us today. How far does he want us to go? Who does he want us to reach? 
What kind of living organism does he want us to be as we hold each other up and each individually remain faithful to God? How he wants to finish this work in this generation. If only we would be faithful to the Lord and to one another. Let me ask you a question. Has our presentation today made sense? Friends, I want to make an appeal. And again, it's not a come down front. It's not a stand up. It's not one of those. But I want to beseech you, urge you, plead with you. Remain individually faithful to the word of God and never compromise. And number two, lift up those who are trying to do a work even if they're doing it poorly. Pray for the God's people that we will be brought into true unity upon the word of God and that we will see Jesus come in this generation. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much that in your infinite wisdom you have for some reason chosen to work not only for us but also through us. And in these last days of earth's history you've raised up this great Seventh-day Adventist movement to give the final message of warning to the world. Lord, help us to ever be faithful to that trust. Help us to be immovable from that great pillar of message you've given us. But as we see methods that we do not understand or perhaps even disagree, Lord, let us not slip back into backbiting, but help us to lift each other up in prayer. Give us a spirit of unity never seen before in this world's history. Lord, we would ask that you would do a miracle amongst us. Make us more than ourselves. Make us like Jesus himself. So that when Jesus comes, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Lord, it is my prayer that Jesus will come soon and even sooner, but that when he does, not one will be missing. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.